Well, as was announced this morning, we'll be looking at Psalm 15. So if you'll take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 15, we'll be reading the, I'll read the entire Psalm, and then we'll pray, and then we'll begin. Again, just let me let everyone know, if you're a visitor here this evening, I am using a, a version of the New American Standard Translation, which uh, translates the name of God as Yahweh. Your, your version may say, the Lord, in small caps. But just so you know, that's what, I, what I'm reading from as I read the scriptures this evening. A Psalm of David. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil in his to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things will never be shaken. Well, let's seek the face of God together once again. Our Father, we come in our weakness and in our need, asking that you would grant to us your Spirit's help to rightly understand your word and to take that word and write it upon our hearts for the good of our souls for the glory of your name. Father, please work in our midst this evening to accomplish great and mighty things that will bring honor to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's obvious, isn't it, if I say that the world is a mess. When we think of the various realities that were described even this morning, the world in which we live, the culture that we have here in America, the, the sins that abound in so many different levels. And the world at large, the larger world, which is uh, at, uh, in, in disarray, wars and uh, uh, hate, hateful people and, and people hating one another. It is a mess. It's a, it's a very, very painful reality to consider the world in which we live. Well, when we come to the Psalms and we come through the first 14 Psalms, if you have read through the Psalms recently, you may recall this, that the world described by the psalmists, uh, many of them by David, uh, is a very similar world to the one in which we live. In Psalm 1, it tells us the world is made up of two different kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked. In Psalm 2, it tells us the world is made up of uh, a war between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. Then in the Psalms that follow, many of them from David's own personal experience, he describes how he himself has been at the center of or involved in that conflict that is ongoing. The conflict between the righteous and the wicked, which marked the ancient world, still marks our world today. Psalm 10 and Psalm 14 uh, tell us something of how deep and how high, if you will, this uh, pain, this suffering, this uh, ugliness, I would say, of the darkness of sin had really gone because Psalm 10 and Psalm 14 are atheistic psalms. They talk of people who, who seek to suppress the knowledge of God. The wicked fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so those two psalms give us something of a picture of what uh, uh, Ethics without God looks like. Ethics that's designed, in one sense, to give a thought that we're free to do whatever we want without fear of any kind of punishment. Promoting this wickedness in the guise of freedom. Well, Psalm 15 picks up right where Psalm 14 leaves off, really, and it, but it addresses the question of uh, what the righteous were, might ask in such a world. And if I can uh, steal a title from 
a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer, the psalmist, as it were, is asking the question, how should we then live? What does biblical ethics look like in such a world? Well, Psalm 15 gives us a picture of some of the foundational concerns for biblical ethics in such an ungodly world. Now, the psalm is fairly easy to really understand when you read it. It's not difficult uh, to, to make our way through it. The difficulty comes in trying to figure out, at least for me, how the pieces fit together. Because it starts with a quest questions about worship, and then it proceeds to talk about ethical character, and then it ends with a promise of stability. Now, look at that and say, well, wait a minute, those things don't necessarily follow in my mind. But hopefully, as we work through this, if they fit in your mind, hopefully they'll fit even better. And if they don't, if you have the same kinds of questions that I have, then hopefully we'll all better understand this song. So there's three parts. Verse 1, a, a one repeated question. And then the larger section in the middle, verses 2 through the middle of verse 5, 10 ethical descriptions. And then it ends with one extravagant promise. One repeated question, 10 ethical descriptions, and one extravagant promise. Begin then with me as we look at this first verse, verse 1, O Yahweh, how, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell in your, on your holy mountain? Biblical ethics, the biblical mindset, always begins with God. And that's what the psalmist begins here. As he thinks about this world, he turns his mind to Yahweh. He turns his mind to ask God a particular question, and he asks him twice that particular question. It's a burning question in his heart. Some of the commentators rephrase the question something along these lines. Who can be a guest in God's house? Well, notice with me how he mentions God's dwelling place among men. He mentions the tent, who may sojourn in your tent. That's the tabernacle, generally speaking, of the tent that followed them through the wilderness or was with them through the wilderness and that David eventually brought to Jerusalem. And then it speaks of Mount Zion, uh, in a sense parallel to this, but more of a, a fixed place. The first, the tent or the tabernacle, speaks of God's traveling apartment, if you will. It had that place in the very center, the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt among his people, where God reigned among his people, where he was in inquired of by the high priest. And then he speaks of Mount Zion, which is really, you could think of it as God's mountaintop property, which Yahweh himself had chosen for his permanent location among his people. But whether it's the traveling apartment tent or whether it's the, uh, the permanent mountaintop location, the reality is these are places where God dwelt among his people. And so, having mentioned these dwelling places, he speaks about being in God's house, sojourning there. And some make a, a big comment about, well, it's, it's just passing through, the sojourner's just going through. Well, you can sojourn a long time. Maybe it's the guest that never leaves, right? It talks about sojourning in God's house all the days of his life, the psalmist speaks. And so, sojourning could be, again, just a, another way, of, a parallel way of saying abiding, dwelling, as he says in the second part of his second question, to dwell there. His question is about being a guest, dwelling in, living in God's house. Being a permanent guest there. And maybe your mind, like many of the commentators, runs to that very familiar psalm and favorite psalm, Psalm 27, where the psalmist says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, or desired of Yahweh, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to meditate in his temple. And the psalmist in Psalm 27 uses many different words to describe where God dwells. The important thing isn't which specific place he's talking about so much as the special place of God's special presence among his people. And the psalmist says, I always want to be there. 
And thus is David's comments here, too. He's still fixed on this. I want to be in God's presence. It's not only the place where God dwells. It's the place where he's approached, where he's worshipped. So again, biblical ethics is concerned fundamentally with giving honor to God. And how we order our lives is never just a matter of what's best for me or how things will work out best in, for me in this world. It's what will bring the most honor. How can God be most effectively and appropriately worshipped? And who can bring such acceptable worship to him? His question then is, well, then if this is where God dwells and this is what we're talking about dwelling, then who could dwell there? Because notice he puts this one little word in his second question. Who may dwell on his holy mountain? His set-apart mountain. Yes, the word means set-apart, and it may just be that it's been set-apart for special use, but it generally also carries with it an ethical connotation separate from sin. Holy mountain. How can I, one who is clearly not holy in all that I should be, dwell in that place? What are the characteristics then that allow somebody to actually dwell in God's presence? Now notice with me another thing here he says in this first sentence. He starts with those words, O Yahweh. He wants an answer to these questions. He doesn't go to the priest. He doesn't go to the prophet. He doesn't go to his parents, just for the alliteration. He goes to God himself. The important thing is, what does God say? Now, a parent, a prophet, a priest might have that answer. But the important thing is, he wants to know what God's standard is for who can dwell in his presence. If you come, want to come to my house, you can ask my grandchildren. And they'll give you an answer as to who can stay in my house. But if you really want to come stay at my house, you better talk to me. Now, my wife and I, we work together on those kinds of things, right? <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, the buck stops here, uh, according to God's order. And so the fact of the matter is, if you really want to stay in our house, you better talk to the, to the person who owns the house and is head in the house. And that's what the psalmist does. He goes to the one whose house it is. And he says, I want to know what Yahweh says about who can be in his house. Of course, we know that that answer ultimately comes from God's word. So if the priest is going to give me an answer from Yahweh, he's going to find it in the Bible. If a prophet is going to give it to me, it's going to be from Revelation. It is, in our day, it's going to be from God's word. If a parent is going to give that answer, it's going to be, what does God say from his word? And so we're going to look into the word. But I just stop at just the first two questions there. I hope those first two questions will burn in each of our minds. And I want you to ask this question. Is that my most important question? Pastor Khan started, I believe it was Psalm 84 he was reading from. The psalmist just longing to be in the house of God. Psalm 27, as I said, one thing I've desired. Are these the burning questions in your mind? To be accepted by God and to be able to dwell in his house. To dwell in the place where he has promised to meet with his people in his church. Is that your burning question? I want to be where God is going to be and meet with his people. Is it a burning question that I want to settle down in a place where I can dwell with God forever? In other words, it not only takes in the picture of the church, but it takes in the ultimate reality of heaven itself. The dwelling place of God and dwelling with Him. And that may be why he speaks of a tent and why he speaks of a permanent location. There's the dwelling place. Isn't this place where we live called living in tents? And isn't there a permanent place yet that we're looking for? That city that's going to come down and be set on a hill? The picture there in the book of Revelation. My believing brothers and sisters in Christ, what is your driving passion in life? Is it to dwell in the presence of God? Or are we driven more by seeing the next episode of the live stream TV 
on Netflix or Amazon Prime? Or is it achieving the next pay grade at work or the highest station at work? Or are we driven more by what our peers think about us and being accepted by our peers? Whether those peers happen to be other students that are on the same sport team or in the same class that I'm in, or whether they just happen to be other families in the church where you're driven by, I want to be known as the family that's the well-ordered one and impresses everybody around me. I have the house that impresses everybody by its cleanliness and by its size. What's your driving passion, brothers and sisters? This double question was the burning question of the psalmist. And it's at the heart of our ethics. If we're going to have a true biblical ethic, it's got to begin with a driving passion to be in the presence of God, to bring honor and glory to God in everything. This needs to be the greatest or one of the greatest motivators in our lives. Can I live in God's presence? What does God say about me? Dwelling in his presence. Will I be accepted by him? Not what do you think about whether you'll be accepted. What does he think about you? And will you be accepted? Is that the burning question? One repeated question. Secondly, ten ethical descriptions. Ten ethical descriptions. And what is kind of surprising here is, having talked about worship, I, I kind of expected him to go in the, in the realm of, of talking about uh, priests and sacrifices. And at least some of the commentators also ran down that line. But he, he doesn't move down the path of religious ceremonies or religious activities. As one man put it, it's a giant step forward from, from pagan religion to believe that the conditions for coming into the Lord's tent are moral, not ritual. What you are, not the words you recite or the offerings you bring. And so he gives a summary of some characteristics similar to ones found in places like Psalm 24, which is very parallel or Isaiah 33, and I just want to read Isaiah 33, verses 14 to 16, because there's a strong parallel there uh, between, uh, with what we see here in the Psalms. Isaiah 33, verses 14 to 16. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? It's a picture of God in his justice and in, and in his wrath and, and in his pureness, purity and holiness. And then he goes on and says, He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. I'm going to resist going down that path. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. See the parallels of some of the things that are going on there. Somebody's going to stand in the presence of God. But notice, I just want you to notice, I'll come back to this, but I just want you to notice, he doesn't say nobody. This is what we heard this morning. What are we? Saints? We are accepted by the beloved. It, it is possible. But more of that later. In our passage, then, I want you to see that our passage is not so unique, Psalm 15, as though it's the only one that addresses these kinds of things. We see other parallels uh, similar to them in the scriptures. And here we have 10 ethical descriptions, and that may be a deliberate parallel with 10 commandments. Though the 10 commandments aren't followed in any such any real order, that the fact of the matter is there are still 10, and it may be that there's a parallel there. As one man said, the 10 commandments of Psalm 15 are not conditions for people who want to belong, but descriptions of people who do belong. That's important. So the section we're looking at here is more like the Beatitudes. 
the descriptions of the people that are able, are able to sit and be in God's presence, not a ladder for how to make your way up to God by doing these things. But let's look at these 10 ethical descriptions. They break down into several categories. We have verse 2. First of all, th the threefold description of an ethical lifestyle. The threefold description of an ethical lifestyle. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Three Hebrew participles, which means nothing to most of us except for maybe a couple, but they, it means it's an ongoing activity. Right? This isn't just a, 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 a verb that has a future or uncompleted activity. It's an ongoing activity. He walks. It's his whole lifestyle. That's typical Old Testament, New Testament language. It speaks about his whole way of living. It's his works, what he's working, what he's doing. And it's a word which is unique here in that it speaks of... of um, works that are done uh, as moral acts. So the emphasis on these activities, when he says who works uh, righteousness, it's, it's a double emphasis on the fact that he's doing moral things. He's acting in a moral way. Morality is at the focus. Ethics is at the focus here. And then speaks in his heart. Again, he's ongoing. He continues to speak. And we speak of our conversation, our way of life. And again, it's, it's, these three words are put together to describe the whole life of the individual. Now, he says three things about these things that he does, his walking, working, and speaking. He says he, he walks in blamelessness or in integrity. Probably the best word is integrity. He's a man that no accusation, with, against whom no accusation can stick. Either because he didn't do anything wrong, or because when he did do something wrong, it's been dealt with. He has taken care of it. He is a man then who has clean hands and a pure heart, Psalm 24 and verse 4, the parallel kind of the parallel passage. He is one who has either avoided sin, so his hands aren't dirty. Or he has gone to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness and has washed even the heart sins in the blood that is there in that fountain. We know, or would say, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's blameless. His lifestyle is marked by one that can look at it and say, he has dealt with any offenses or avoided offending. But then he uses the word righteousness which I'm going to say, if the first word speaks of integrity, this one speaks of piety and purity. For one to do righteous works is to, is to go about doing that which God calls him to do. It's fulfilling the standards of God. One who is righteous has kept God's standards, has followed his commands. And if the Ten Commandments comes in, they could be actually brought into this one word. If a man is going to be righteous, he's going to do all that God asks him to do. He's going to live up to and be obedient to God's commands. And then he speaks truth in his heart. In or with or to his heart. Now, this doesn't talk about his words that come out of his mouth. We'll see that a little bit later. I don't believe this speaks particularly of the words that he's speaking, as much as the words that he's speaking to himself. It's not from his heart, it's to his heart that he speaks. This is a man who is not only one who is a man of integrity and a man of piety, but he's a man of sincerity. He's a man of honesty. He's a man who's looked at his heart and he, and he speaks to his heart the truth about who he is and what he needs. He's the one who speaks truth because he, he speaks to himself what is true from God's word. He wants to think God's thoughts after him. He wants to think about the world around him the way that God thinks about it. So he takes God's word and he speaks it to himself. Whether that's words that he's memorized or words that he's reading or principles that he knows that he says, wait a minute, I am going to think about my world as it comes in through this filter. What's the truth? 
Now we know that ultimately that goes to Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, who came to be a witness to the truth. Which means he's going to, he's going to take this through the, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we would say. He's not somebody who, who speaks to his heart about all the wounds everybody has inflicted against him. Replay, all the wounds that everybody has inflicted against him. Replay, all the, no, 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 that's not what he does. He's not the one who looks at, at all the problems of the world and then goes, ah, that's so big, and comes unglued. He looks like David at the big problems and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he stands against the armies of the living God? He's a Philistine. I've got a living God in heaven. He looks at the power of the world around him and all the, the ungodliness has taken place. And what does he do? He says, oh, my God reigns. He created the heavens and the earth. The nations are but like grasshoppers or drops on the side of a bucket. I am going to speak to my heart truth. And when those lies come either from the sin of his own heart or they sneak in through the ear, he says, no, I'm going to push those out. They don't get a place in my thoughts. Lies about people or lies about the world or lies about myself, or lies about God. He's hard. He's cruel. He's no. What has God said? He speaks truth to himself in his heart. He reminds himself of a righteous judge and prays like David did when people were coming against him and saying all kinds of manner against him and they were making songs up about him in the gates. What does he do? He prays for them. He's going to speak truth to himself in his heart. These are the three descriptions of an ethical lifestyle. Integrity, purity or piety, and sincerity, or verity, if you want, truth. But then we have, in verse 3, a threefold description of ethical restraints. An ethical lifestyle in verse 2, ethical restraints in verse 3. He goes from the positive to the negative, things he won't do. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. He does not slander. The word literally means to spy out. Uh, and one, one commentator said maybe it's better to describe this word as scandalize. He's somebody who's just looking for something to find on somebody else so that he can blot, put a blot on their reputation. He is somebody who wants to get a hold of any little thing that he can use, true or not. It may be completely true what he can dig up, but he is going to spread it abroad. Why? So that he can ruin their reputation, affect the way other people view him or her. The ethical man says, that's not coming out of my mouth. That's not the way I'm going to speak about others. That's not the way that I'm going to view the problems and sins and promise or, or secrets of others. I'm not going to dig them up so that I can display them on my Facebook. I'm going to tame these fingers. They're not going anywhere. No, no slander. Nor does he do evil to his neighbor. Very general term. It's just, it's, it's, it's stated as generally as you possibly could. To say, I am not going to do anything which could harm my neighbor. I'm not going to steal from him. I'm not going to hurt him. I'm not going to offend him. I am not going to be unneighborly. I'm going to seek to be a good neighbor. And then, he says, nor, nor is he going to take up a reproach against his friend. Take up a reproach against his friend. Now, this is something that, again, the commentators go around. So what is he talking about? Well, immediate response is, 
I'm not going to speak that way to people. I'm not going to speak down to people. I'm not going to mock people. I'm not going to pick on people. I'm not going to try to cut them down to size. That's not what I'm going to do. I will not take up reproach against them. And it may be that that's what he's talking about. I'm not going to be unfriendly in that way. But I think it probably has something else. We've seen, notice with me, in verse 2 about the heart. We, we see in verse 3 at the beginning about his tongue. And I think here we could be seeing a picture, though he doesn't use the term, about his ears. I won't take up a reproach. When this comes to me, I'm not picking it up. It's that hot potato that I don't want. You know, we play that game in my house where you pass the disc around and you're trying to give clues to get your team to say something. And you've always got that person that right at the end, the buzzer's just about to go off and they get the guess and they, whew, I gotta get rid of this thing. And the person next to him goes, nah, I'm not touching it. Right? That's what the reproach is. I'm not taking that. Nope, nope, not coming into my lap. It's not coming into my ears. Proverbs 17, 4 says, an evil doer listens to wicked lips. What you listen to in your ears tells me something about your heart. This is where Calvin goes with this particular phrase. He says, but I think there is also here rebuked the vice of undue credulity. That is, Anything they tell me, I'm, that, I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to take it. Which, when any evil reports are spread against our neighbors, leads us either eagerly to listen to them, or at least to receive them without sufficient reason. You see what he's saying? It's not just, you know, we should all be the kind of people that when somebody comes and says, you know, this person is, is a great help, a great encouragement. This person, you know, they, they, they're the kind of gracious person I want to be like. And we should all be going, yeah, I'm going to take that on. That's how I'm going to think about that person. Rather than, mm, yeah. You know, we're going to be, we're skeptics, aren't we? But no, we take it up. But when the, when the bad report comes, do you know what she did to me? Do you know how he treated me? What? Tell me. Give me a little bit more. No. And we take it up. And we take it in. That's what, that's what Calvin says. I think there is here rebuke the vice that when evil reports are spread against our neighbors, it leads us to eagerly listen to them or at least receive them with no reason for receiving them. Whereas we ought rather to use all means to suppress, and I love it, this is Calvin, Trample them underfoot. You come to me with an evil report, you might better want to point your, pull your toes back. We shouldn't want to hear it. We shouldn't be. Now, now I'll make a brief qualification. It's real brief and it's real easy. If I'm part of the problem or I'm part of the solution, you can tell me. If I'm not part of the problem, that is, I have no idea what's going on and I wasn't part of it, and I'm not part of the solution, then don't tell me. I don't need to know. That's A&M, sweet and simple, right? If you're not part of the problem, you're not part of the solution, you don't need to hear it, period. It's gossip otherwise. Oh, but they want prayer. It's gossip. Oh, but they, if they're looking for counsel, then you're going to hold them accountable, right? <laughs> You want counsel from me about how to deal with the problem? There's some of you who come to me, you know. When you come to me, I'm going to ask, did you talk to them first? No. Then I don't want to know it. Do you need counsel as to how to approach them? Yes. Okay, then talk to me. And now I'm going to hold you accountable. Did you talk to them? No. <laughs> Let's go. Right? But here, it says, we should be those who will not take these things up. They should be like hot potatoes. They should be like the things we do not want on our hands. You know, if it doesn't come into your ears, it can't go out your tongue. 
So maybe we need a little more of this going on at times. Threefold description of ethical lifestyle, threefold description of ethical restraints, and then we have one positive ethical evaluation, verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. So we've gone from the heart to the tongue to the ears, now the eyes. And he says, one positive ethical evaluation. David evaluates people. <gasps> yeah, no, he does. He, he, takes, he watches what's going on around him and he makes evaluations based on what he sees, based on the truth he's been speaking to his heart. And he despises the reprobate. Delraf Davis says, not very politically correct. <laughs> Certainly not. But truly a godly thing. Now notice it's in his eyes. It's in his eyes that he makes this evaluation. It's not on his lips. In other words, this is not something that says you can despise people with your lips if you think they're ungodly or if they're reprobates. It is not with his feet or with his hands, though it may affect our feet. Might be people we need to flee from. But it's in his eyes. He's looking. He's looking and he's seeing. And, and he's seeing in somebody that they are a reprobate. Now the word reprobate here means one who has rejected God or is rejected by God. This is not just somebody who has a little sin in their lives. This is somebody who has rejected God's word, who has trashed God's name, who wants nothing to do with it. It says, when I see that, I don't like that. I despise that. That dishonors my God. And so therefore, I am not going to accept. I'm not going to embrace that. I'm not going to like that. I despise that, actually. But when he sees somebody who honors, who, who fears God, he says, that I love. That brings glory to God. And I'll remind you of what fearing God means just by using Charles Bridges' definition from his Commentary on Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's will. God's wrath is so bitter and his love is so sweet that hence from the child's heart springs an earnest desire to please him. And because of the danger of coming short from his own weakness and temptations, this fear produces a holy watchfulness and fear that he might not sin against God. An affectionate reverence, a loving fear by which the child of God bends himself humbly to his father's will. That's the fear of God. And when David says, when I see that in somebody... That is extremely attractive to me. That thrills my heart to see that. I'll tell you one place where I see this, and I've seen it over the years. When a parent comes to me who has a child who has just sinned, and the parent says, excuse me, I'm going to go have to discipline. And they take the child, and they deal with it, and they bring them back. And they have to go out again, and they have to bring them back. And they have to go out again. About the third time they come back and they start apologizing to me. And I'm saying, no, I am thrilled to see parents who are willing to deal with their children lovingly and biblically. That is a wonderful thing. And when I see a man who loses a job because he has an ethical principle, he will not lie. He will not steal. He will not cheat. I say, that's a beautiful thing. Because God has been honored by a man who feared God. Trusting that his father would care for him. So this ethical evaluation does not leave a license to put people down with our words. But it reflects what is most valuable to David. What is most valuable to David in his friends. It reflects 
what is his greatest affection. And it doesn't have to do with economics or social influence or education or ethnicity. It's what's the person's relationship to God. And when he sees one who fears God because he fears God, that is what he values in his companions. That is the most important characteristic for those whom he, with whom he's going to associate. He's going to pick this up in the very next psalm, in Psalm 16, when he says in verse 3, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom my soul delights. In whom is all my delight. I ask you, is that the way you choose your friends? Is that the way you choose your companions? Those who fear God? Those who are going to provoke you to love and good deeds by their fearful lifestyle, their fearing of God lifestyle? Is that the people you want to be around? Or is the person with the, with the greatest wit? Or the greatest intellect? Or the greatest acumen in some field? Or, or has the, the best physical strength? What is it that you admire most about yourself and you value most in yourself that you also want to see in your friends? Is it fearing God? Is that highest on your list? It was for David. But then he moves on, and I must move on, to a threefold description of godlike traits. A threefold description of ethical lifestyle, verse 2. A threefold description of ethical restraints, verse 3. A one positive ethical evaluation, verse 4. Threefold description of godlike traits, verses 4 and 5. He swears faithfully. He does not charge interest. And he does not take bribes. He swears faithfully. This is a person who is trustworthy and loyal. When they say something, you can take them at their word. They really follow what Jesus said. Their yes is yes and their no is no. Whether it's estimates they're doing on a job, offers they're making of help, commitments they have made at various times, or whether it's things they won't do. But you see, he's being just like God, isn't he? Because isn't this one of the things that is, is so heartwarming and comforting to know about God, that he is trustworthy, that he's faithful to every promise. He makes a promise, he's going to keep it. You know it, there's no doubt about it. He states a principle, it's absolutely true. Isn't this something that we then ought to strive to have in ourselves, that our words reflect that? And then he does not, take, does not charge interest, and I won't go into all the issues of usury and when interest is acceptable and when it isn't, the use of our monies. But, but basically, the, the bottom line is this. He's somebody who's compassionate and uses his resources for the good of others rather than for the good of himself. He's not looking to better himself all the time. He's got these resources he wants to help others. And even if he lends money, it's lending money in such a way that the other person is helped, not put in bondage. And then he doesn't take a bribes. He's just in all that he does. He's more interested in justice than in personal profit, than in personal advancement. He's not easily bought off. He's not easily turned aside. He wants to be sure that justice is, is, is held. Now, as one man said, this is not an exhaustive catalog. This is... Almost a four, this is rather a four-verse description, as Dale Ralph Davis says, that depicts genuine, faith-driven, Old Testament piety. You want to see a saint that we heard about this morning? These are the kinds of things you'll see in them. These are the kinds of people that, that hang around God's tent, that dwell in His presence. These are the kind of characteristics of, of those who live with God. They have this general characteristics of, of integrity and piety and truthfulness in their in sincerity. 
And, and they're very careful the way they use their lips and the way they act and, and the way they relate to others. And they're evaluating based on God's principles and they value those things which honor God most. And they are the people who are interested in doing good to others around them rather than harming them. They're in wanting to see the whole body advance rather than just themselves. Does that sound familiar? I was thinking, Pastor Chansky's preaching my sermon this morning. Is this what we're looking for in life? Is this who we are? Is this what we're a part of? Are we truly wanting, you know, the, the big word today, is it authentic? Well, if it's authentic, that means it matches the original. It doesn't mean I feel good about it. That's not authenticity. That's feeling good. Authenticity is what's the master picture and do I match it? So what's the master picture? Who we have pictured here? Jesus. Who's the perfect example of all these things? The Lord Jesus Christ. So how closely do you reflect the character of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's where we should be heading. That's how we should be living. That's where authenticity is found. You see, not everyone, Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to be able to be in God's presence and dwell in God's presence. Because they did not do his, what he said. And so he's going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Again, none of this is a ladder to get ourselves to God. This is a picture of what the people of God are to be like. And this is how we should look at ourselves when we say, I'm going to go to meet with God today. Is there any of this that's not in me or these sins which are in me that I need to get right? that I might approach the living God. This is the character which union with Christ produces. But then you list the, look at this list, and I have to say, you know, to me, I read this list and I go, I'm never going to be able to dwell in God's presence. I'm not going to be able to spend eternity with God. That's absolutely true, and there's none of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God, not one. Oh, but there is one. His name is Jesus. And he kept all righteousness. And he is fixed at the right hand of God, dwelling securely in his presence forever. And because of him and being united to him, we can approach this God. Our righteousness, our integrity, our ability to deal with sin and avoid sin and our cleansing and our being able to control this little thing called our tongue and, our, and our, use our money in a way that's helpful to others. Ultimately, I can only do that in Christ, with the grace of Christ. And the wonderful thing is, he promises us all the grace necessary to do that. That's next week. He promises. That brings me to my last statement in the psalm. We've looked at the one burning question stated twice. We've looked at the ethical description. We come finally to the extravagant promise. Isn't this just like God? He doesn't just say, okay, come in. He says, he who does these things will never be shaken. I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And I have eternity to look forward to with him. Because he's promised, not based on my good works, but based on his grace. He's promised. And he tells us that he will give us a place where we can never be shaken and never be lost. We are in his hand. Who can take us out of the hand of Jesus Christ, our Savior? Who can take us out of the hand of the Father who is wrapped around, as it were, the hand of the Son? Not one. If we are in Christ, this is our confidence. We will not be shaken. When the world's collapsing around us, 
And the world is saying, flee to the mountains. When the foundations are crumbling, we don't need to be shaken. Because we are in the safest place possible. We are standing on the rock that is higher than I. We are sitting at the throne of grace and the throne of the universe that's ruling everything. He's pulling back the scroll and his providence is happening at his direction. There is nothing that we need fear. We can be confident and at peace in the worst of circumstances because we are being held by God. Dale Ralph Davis finishes his commentary on this psalm with these words. Here in the psalm, we begin by wanting to sojourn in God's tent, and he conclude, and here we conclude by, he, he concludes by assuring us, excuse me, we start by wanting to discern, he concludes by assuring us that we are safe in his hand. Yahweh always gives more. Adoration is in order. What a glorious, glorious ethic to live by. For direction for life. Hope and confidence in life. What are you depending on? What's the burning question in your soul? If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, what's the burning issue for you? What's the driving passion for you? And how are you going to achieve it? It's all going to burn. It's all going to vaporize. If you're just living for this world, it's passing away. Where will you stand then? So I don't care what Yahweh thinks. Well, that's too bad because he does care what you think. And he's going to hold you accountable for that when you meet him. And he welcomes you into his presence. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He opened up the fountain for sin and uncleanness so that you could be cleansed and you could come in. He offered his only begotten son to die on the cross so that your sins could be dealt with, that you might come in. Go to him. And you can join us in this great and glorious promise that we will never be shaken for all eternity. May God be pleased to work in your hearts. May it work in all of our hearts through this psalm. Let's pray. God in heaven, be gracious to write your word upon our hearts and help us to live for your glory and your honor, to live in the fear of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.